Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Today. So thank you so much for our volunteers, for our kids, and God, we are, we are just so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so kids, you're going to follow all the, the volunteers out that way. Parents, you don't need to, to lead them in um, unless you haven't checked them in yet, so... All right. Hear from, hear from the book of James this morning. Great, here we go. Good, good, good. We're going to be in chapter 5, um, starting in verse 7. These are the words of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, um, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Deal, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. God, give us life by your word. Through your Holy Spirit, God, we pray that you would um, cause us to treasure your word in our hearts and cause it to change our lives, to hear your voice, to follow your your invitation, God, and to to follow you in this world, God. We ask for your grace this morning as we we listen and as we we aim to be taught and transformed, God. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, at the risk of repeating myself again and again and again, I just want to give you a little, just a little uh, kind of tagline that I'm going to keep coming back to. And this, this has something to do with, with the book of James as a whole. And it's been some, some, uh, some difficulty for me reading this, actually. Um, it's been a challenge for me. The book of James and the message of the book of James has been a challenging word for me to hear. And it's just, it struck me as, as sobering, and, and it's taken me a while to appreciate it and to, and to hear it as, as gracious. But I want us to hear today that hard words from God are still gracious words. They're still words from a gracious, loving, and compassionate God, even if they're hard, even if they're challenging and difficult. Sorry, that was a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit rude. <laughs> um, as Christians, we believe that, that Jesus is the word of God. 
And, that, and Christians have always believed that, that everything about Jesus' life, his teaching, his, his birth, his resurrection, his, his death for us, his ascension into heaven, that everything about his life, every aspect about his life is a revelation of God, is, is the communication about who God is and what God is like. And that, and that while we believe that Jesus is the word of God and that Jesus' message is one of grace and love and, and God's goodness, at the same time, there's, there's, there's parts of his life and parts of his message that are hard to hear. I'll give you an example. The message of the incarnation, where we proclaim, and, and, and Christians have always believed, that in Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the whole universe, of all things, took on the form of a man and was born uh, to a poor, obscure family in a dumpy, backwater town in Roman occupied Palestine thousands of years ago in relative obscurity. That's hard for people to hear. We believe it, and, and Christians have always said that our whole lives are tied up with this fact. But ask your local atheist, and they'll tell you that's hard to swallow. That's a hard message to swallow. Um, think about I'll give you another example think about in Jesus' day when you have all these learned scholars and theologians who study the Bible study the Old Testament study the traditions of, of their faith and you have Jesus this guy who's never been to seminary, who's not part of their, their academy or their, their kind of professional guild of, of religious authorities, he comes to them and he says, this Bible that you study day after day after day after day, it's all about me. And here I am. And you don't see it. You don't see what you're supposed to see. That's got to be offensive. These guys have given their whole life to study and to try to understand. And here's this nobody telling them that the whole Bible's about me. That's a hard word to hear. If you think about Jesus' words to like the, the chief priests and the religious authorities and the, and the pillars in the community of faith, these, these people that everyone looks up to, and Jesus says to them, that um, prostitutes and tax collectors are going to enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's a hard word. That's a, that's a rough message. But there it is, in Jesus' mouth. And you would be, be hard-pressed to try to say that Jesus is not gracious, that he's not loving, but there's that hard word nonetheless. And so, what I want us to hear today is that even though James has difficult words, a difficult message, um, I want us to, to hear that, that, that the giver of that message is a gracious and compassionate God. And that God doesn't have any objection to giving hard words to his people. And, and I can appreciate a, a guy like James, he's not campaigning for public office. And he's not writing a, a smooth message that's going to pull well with people. He doesn't need you to like him. But he's under obligation. He's got to testify truthfully to the church. And, you know, personally, this is probably the first book that we've gone through as a church um, where I've felt like, like I'm taking some of the punches. And I'll explain what I mean by that is I know, I know that the Bible is nothing if it's not controversial. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of people that, that they get upset about all the violence in the Old Testament and, and the warfare. And quite frankly, that doesn't bother me because I'm not a Canaanite. I know, I know that a lot of people, a lot of people take offense at what, what the Bible says about, about gender and gender roles and marriage and divorce and human sexuality. And quite honestly, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. But James, he goes and he starts talking about good, law-abiding, middle-class church people. And that's, that bothers me. Because I find he's talking about me now. He's talking about people who can't control what they say. Who can't keep a, can't keep a rein on their tongue. Who gossip and who grumble about people. He's talking about me. He talks about people who live in luxury and self-indulgence. I can't think of a better phrase to, to, to sum up the American dream. Living in luxury and self-indulgence. He starts talking about rich people. And I would love, I would love nothing less than to say, he's not talking about me because I'm not rich. And maybe according to the IRS, I'm not rich. But according to the Apostle James, I, I, I qualify as rich. I do. I know that. And so I find myself in the crosshairs under the gun. And, and I know these are hard words. And quite honestly, there's just, at this point, there's no way for me to sidestep it and say that, you know, that's not, if you look at the Greek, that's not really what that means. That's bogus. It's bogus. There's, I mean, there's ways to try to avoid what the scripture says. And I think that's one of the importance of having, uh, having a, what they call a doctrine of scripture. Having a, an approach to the Bible as a whole so that when parts of it come at you that you can't dodge it. That we can't ignore it like it doesn't say what it actually says. And, it, and, I, and I think... As, as confrontational and as, as sharp as James can be, he's coming across, he's writing to the church, he's writing to, to bring about a change in his hearers. He's trying to foster change in the people that are hearing him. And, and I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if I should be encouraged by the fact that He's, I feel like he's yelling at someone else before he yells at me. You know, like he wrote this to a different church, and I'm, I'm reading it kind of secondhand, but I, at the same time, he's writing still to us. He's writing to the church, and here we are. And it's not as though James is just yelling at people. He's not just putting people under the gun. He's not trying to strong-arm people. This whole book, this whole letter is is a call to encouragement. He's trying to encourage the church to, to persevere, to endure, to strengthen what's, what's weak and what's failing. And it's a testimony to the fact that even in the church, even in the church, you find, we find a, a, a discrepancy by what, what, what it ought to be and what it actually is. Do you know what I'm saying? How, how the church is actually supposed to be. How we're actually supposed to be disciples. How we're actually supposed to love one another and what we actually do. You know, and that's, I don't, I don't see how that's other than God's grace and kindness to address that. And to not, to not try to, you know, just put a veneer over it like everything's fine when it's not. It's God's grace jealous, faithful love to be like, you're my people and I want you to, I want you, all of you, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to be quiet until, until, you know? Um, so it's the grace of God to say, what you do matters. What you practice matters as much as what you preach, maybe even more. And when those things don't match up, when what you say you believe and what you do, when they don't match up, that's a problem. That's a problem. And so, 
So today, James starts off, he calls us to be patient, to endure, to be long-suffering, to be steady in light of the Lord's coming. What, he, what, what James calls patience in the face of hardship, what a guy, an author named Eugene Peterson, he calls it a, a long obedience in the same direction. And this way of life, this way of life, it only makes sense in light of the Lord's coming. So he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, when we start talking about the coming of the Lord, when we talk about the return of Christ, there's two responses that, unfortunately, are the most common. The first one is when we talk about the Lord's return is people come unhinged. And they start looking up random numbers in random Bible passages to somehow arrive at a very certain and sure date of the Lord's return. And because it's going to be soon, you ought to sell all your worldly goods and send the money to me. Or they start, they start reading, they have the Bible open in one hand and the newspaper over in the other, and they're trying to draw the line between who is the Antichrist and who's the beast and you know what, what monster represents what world leader. Or they start looking at the moon and what color the moon is and when is the next solar eclipse. And they just get ridiculous. It gets ridiculous. And they forget, I mean, they take seriously the fact that, that Jesus is coming. He will return. But they forget and don't take seriously the fact that God calls us to be patient in the light of that. And if, if you really believe that the Lord is, that we're living in the end times, that's good because we are. And we have been living in the end times ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and, and made the promise, I'm coming back. Since that day, over a thousand years ago, we've been living in the end times. And it's always been closer than it, than it ever has been before. But there's a call to be patient. And I think the other response, which is probably more likely uh, in, this, in this congregation, is one of ambivalence. Is that when people say the Lord's coming back, we say, yeah, that's right, yep, cool. Can we stop talking about that? That's weird. <laughs> the church throughout its entire history has always confessed that we believe that that, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. But there's a difference between believing it and yearning for it and wanting it. And the illustration that James uses is one of a, a farmer, a farmer who plants crops and he has to wait. And there's nothing he can do to make them grow any faster. It doesn't matter who the Antichrist is. He has to be patient. God gives the, the, the rain. God gives the growth. But it's not as though he's just waiting and it doesn't matter. He's banking his whole life on the fact that the harvest is coming. Otherwise, none of the patience, none of the waiting makes any sense. He needs those crops to grow. He needs that harvest. Otherwise, his life is wasted. And I'm, I'm afraid... I'm afraid that, that that Christ's return doesn't have that same reference point. It doesn't have that same weight for us as it does for the farmer who's waiting and longing. And here's how this, how this applies to our lives. Is that forgiving someone who's wronged us, who's hurt us, having forgiveness for them, it only makes sense in light of the Lord's return. Humbling yourself and showing preference to others, that only makes sense in light of the Lord's return. The call to stay faithful when it doesn't immediately benefit you, it only makes sense in light of the Lord's return. The, the, the exhortation not to take vengeance, it only makes sense at the Lord's, because of the Lord's return. Because 
if Jesus is not coming back to right all wrongs, to wipe away tears, to, to make good on his promise, then all we have is the here and now, and by all means, it ought to be survival of the fittest. That is, that is what we're left with. Survival of the fittest. Get whatever you can by any means necessary and, and, and stomp over whoever stands in your way. Only the strong survive, and they survive by eating the weak. If, if, that's, if that's all we have is right here and right now, then by all means, that's how we ought to live. But if the Lord is coming back, if he will right all wrongs, if, if it really is his to avenge, then we can entrust our lives to him. And we can live in a way that's different from that value system. I think the, the danger for us is we get too settled here. We get too comfortable here. And it's, it's easy either to forget or to ignore how messed up the world actually is. To get too comfortable with the present state of affairs. For people like me and, and others, um, who are rich in the world, it's, it's a challenge to, to cry out with the prophets and apostles, come soon, Lord Jesus. Right? To be able to cry out, like with, with David in the Psalms, come quickly to save me. You know? If that's the case, then we don't need patience. We actually need eager expectation. We need a sense of anticipation. So, but James tells us, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We're called to be patient because discipleship, following the Lord, establishing our hearts is a process. It's a process, it takes time, and it takes practice, and this is the way, this is the way that the Holy Spirit takes us from what we once were, or who we are today, to bringing us uh, into what God is trying to grow us into, to look more and more like Christ, to follow him closer and closer, and to be, to be honest, there's, it's not just, we're not just learning but we're unlearning too at the same time. I spent probably 20 years of my life letting the world disciple me in regards to how I talk and what's okay, what, what types of things are okay to come out of my mouth. Um, let the world disciple me in regards to sex, how I view sex. I let the world disciple me in regards of what I think about money and what I do with my money. And to just be frank, that, that takes some time to unlearn. That takes some time to, to, to grow out of and to learn a new way. And it's a struggle, and it's going to be a fight. And the ways that, that I've experienced God's victory in my life over sins, it's amazing, and it's good, but at the same time, it seems like the more God gives you victory over sin, the more, the more you see what's, how much left there is to address. You know what I'm, is anyone with me? Do you feel what I'm saying on that? So, like, I wish I could say to you that once God uh, granted me repentance from sins, you know, A through F, then I'm good. Then I'm done. And now I can sit on the mountaintop and just relax because I'm perfect. Unfortunately, I'd love to say that's the case. Unfortunately, it's just not. The more, the, the more we grow out of the things that once entrapped us, you know what I mean? The things that once dominated us, um, the more that we see the, what's really under the surface is, is still messy. We still need God's grace. We still need repentance. And there's no, I'm afraid there's no end until he returns. There's no like level of perfection that we can say, I'm there. And that's the, 
I guess that's the, the dilemma of sanctification. And we see this again in the scriptures. You know, I'm not, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Think of um, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he sees, he's in the temple, he sees a vision of the Lord in, in all his glory, and he immediately gets scared. He says, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. He says, I'm in trouble because I've got an extremely foul mouth, and I've seen the Lord, and it's not good. I, this ain't right. This doesn't match up. When, when Jesus calls Peter to come and follow him in the Gospel of Luke, Peter says, he falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. So God calls us to be patient until the coming of the Lord, to establish our hearts, to make strong what's weak, our weak and divided hearts. And the way we do this, we encourage one another. We pray for one another. We confess our sins to another, one another. And we show patience to one another. And, and James tells us, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So as we individually are, are a people in process, we are getting discipled. And it's not immediate. It's not instant. Together, as a church, it's the same thing. We're a people in process, and we're not yet complete. And we got to remember that, that it's not, just, it's not just other people's sins that we need to address. We, too, are, are, are in that process of discipleship and sanctification. And I will admit that is a temptation for me to stand here and to, to grumble about other people's sins, to, to be brokenhearted over other people's sins. I, this, call, this, this call, don't grumble against one another, man, I, I admit full on that I, man, I would hate to say, I would love to say I used to grumble about people. That's just not the case. It's an enormous temptation is to grumble about other people in this room. You know, um, you know, in the book of Numbers, if you, probably not. <laughs> there's a story, there's a story in the book of Numbers of the Israelites, they're in the wilderness, and God is providing for them in the wilderness. God's giving them water and bread, you know, he's, he's giving it to them. They don't have to do anything but just pick it up. And they start grumbling. They start murmuring. And so God gives them meat. And can, they continue with the murmuring, and then he sends a plague upon them. You know, I can, I can read myself into that story as being one of those Israelites that died in the wilderness. And, you know, the, the last words out of my mouth would have been like, seriously, no hot sauce, you know? And James Griffin died in the wilderness, you know, because he grumbled against the Lord. It's a temptation to just complain in fact, it's easy for me to, to, to come up here and to rattle off half a dozen sins that I don't, I don't either currently struggle with or I don't struggle with yet or that I didn't struggle with this week and to, and to name other people's sins and ignore my own. That's what, it, that's what happens when we grumble against one another. We want to play the judge and our judgment is premature. It's not time yet. And it's easy for the church to do this. We get worked up over other people's sins out there, and we want to ignore what's really going on in here. One of the most profound things I've ever heard was, was a pastor who said, it does you no good to confess other people's sins. But here's the deal. There is a judge. There is a judge. This is the struggle. Because it's not like it's no judgments whatsoever. There is a judge. He's standing at the door. Jesus Christ, he's the judge. He lays our motives bare. You know what I mean? We live under his, his watchful eye, 
His judgment. But His judgment is different than our own. Because above all, the judgment of Christ seeks to reconcile. Seeks to restore. Right? When He was on the cross, when our Lord was on the cross, His his last words were, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. He's trying to draw all men, all women to him. And even even in extreme cases, God is seeking reconciliation, even if it means almost breaking off a relationship. The example being, um, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, there's a guy in the church who's going nuts, and he's, he's hooking up with his stepmom. And Paul says, Tell that guy to leave the church and don't have anything to do with them. And the point is not so that you can wash your hands of that wicked sinner and you never liked him anyway. But the whole point is that he might, he might come to his senses and realize that he lost his mind. That he might be granted repentance and be restored. That's the whole point. The judgment of Christ is trying to re- restore and bring and renew and reconcile. And our temptation is to, is to just shun and separate people or make peace with, with sin. We either make peace with it and we act like nothing's wrong, everything's fine, it's all good, happy to see you, buddy, yeah, great. Or it's a mix of both. We, tend, we often tend to we make peace with our own sin and we shun other people because of theirs. And the problem is, is, if we're not praying for people to be restored, if we're not praying for people to be reconciled and be granted repentance, and if we're not, if we're not tore up over our own sin, that's a problem. That's a problem. I don't know how good we are doing this. Either, I think we either tend to just act like everything's all good, there's no problem. Sin can just, it can be something we don't really talk about. We don't want to name it. Or we pick like four or five sins that we think are extra, extra, you know, worthy of condemnation, and then we're just going to harp on those. Um, I don't know how we would do it, but I know that the church is called to reflect the character of a God who condemns sin and embraces sinners. I, don't, I wish I could tell you I have a three-point plan. I don't, I don't know. I know it would be a miracle if it happened. But that's what we're called to do. James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who who remained steadfast. The prophets are those crazy people. They heard these crazy hard words of God and they believed them. And not only did they believe them, that they actually repeated them in public. And it wasn't necessarily to an open and receiving audience. It was often very hostile. They had an unbelieving uh, group that they were speaking to. And they showed that they believed by what they did. And James says we're supposed to see in these people an example of suffering. And I guess if they're supposed to be an example to us, then that means we're supposed to imitate them. And I would just as soon skip that part. Why can't we just skip all the suffering? As I'm, as I'm reading through James, as I'm preparing for you know, this week and last week, that's, that, that, that digs at me. I'm, I look at my own life and I'm like, I'm lacking in suffering. And I think this might be one of the, one of the ways in which it's not so much that the church is changing the world, but that the world is changing the church, is that we tend to be allergic to suffering. 
We try to, we try to you know, make our life trouble-free. We call it simplifying our lives. And so relationships that are messy, we just kind of push them away and close the door and be like, I, can't, I just can't even deal with it. I need to take care of me. You know, marriages that are rocky, we, we tend to just, we walk away from them, just wash our hands, try again next time. You know, Martin Luther, he was a guy who, who he said a lot of crazy stuff, but he also said that suffering is one of the distinguishing marks of the church. That we are a people that are identified with the cross, with the suffering of Jesus Christ. We live by Christ's suffering, and we're called to, to imitate that. This is another part of James that, that I find troubling. Um, James says to me and to other people like me that we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. As I was coming up to this, uh, some weeks ago, I heard a song on the radio, and I think, I looked it up because I didn't know who it was. It was a guy named Big Sean, Big Sean. And it's got Kanye West and it's got Drake. Yeah, I recognize them. I didn't know who Big Sean was. And, and this, the song goes, he's like, I'm way up, I feel blessed. And the, the, the whole point of the song is I'm, I'm rich. I have, you know, many uh, sexual encounters with women. Um, I'm, I'm super wealthy. Everyone knows who I am. I'm living the high life. I feel blessed. James says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He's calling us to endurance in this world, in hardship, in suffering. He's saying that's true blessedness. He's redefining what people consider to be blessed. Typically, we say, I'm too, stressed to be ble- I'm too blessed to be stressed. James says, that's not quite how it works. The trouble is, do we also believe this? Do we believe this? Do we believe what he, how he defines blessedness? Enough to act like it. Enough to invite some uncomfort into our lives. I'll give you uh, a quick relationship. I mean, a quick example, personally. Things that have proven to be contentious points for me. My time, my relationships, and my money. And the time and the relationships, they go together. Because I, you know, I go to work. I come home, and, and in the past, I've struggled immensely not to just shut the doors on my life and say, please stay away. I don't want you coming over. I don't want to deal with your stuff. I got my own problems. I could care less about yours. Shut the door. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? Even to the point that it, it gets to be an argument in my house. Because my wife, she'll make plans. Hey, these people are coming over, and then you got to go help this guy build this thing. And I'm like, you know, damn, I already work. I already worked 40 hours this week. You know, I'm already getting up early. Why can't I just rest? Why can't I just relax? But to understand that my life and my time is not mine alone. That we're called to pour our lives out on behalf of others, to open up, you know, and to let. People who maybe don't think the exact same way as we do or don't live the exact same way as we do, who aren't comfortable for us to make room in our lives, to open ourselves up and embrace them and be family, you know? Money is another one. I get my check. I used to get check. We don't get check stubs anymore. It's all electronic. But I look at my check stub and I'm like, this is gone. This is gone. The government took this. The government took that. The union takes this. Man, that's a lot of money gone from my check. And the temptation is to be like, whatever's left over, man, that is all mine. All of it. And I always hear, I've heard from so many people, neighbors and coworkers, oh, man, you know, the church, they say that, you know, God loves you, but eventually it just comes to, they just want your money. I wish, I wish that was all they wanted. If, if the church only wanted your money, that would be nice, right? If you could write a check and just be done with it. Unfortunately, that's not the case. God wants so much more. And this, 
it's an opportunity, right, to give sacrificially, to, to be generous, to say, honestly, man, I, this check that I wrote out, I want this. I want, I want to spend this on something else. I want, a, I want a table saw or, you know, I want a, a, a compound bow that's $1,000 or, you know, whatever it is. I want those newest Nikes. It's, it's an opportunity to, to deny our, to say no to ourselves. That's hard to do. That's hard to do. We live in a, in a culture that just fosters yes, 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 whatever you want right now. We, they got an app called Siri that just helps you get whatever you want. Tell me this, tell me that, do this, you know. The temptation is perhaps, you know, James is writing to a church where persecution is, is obvious. You know what I mean? People are going to jail. People are getting dragged off. They're, they're, they might be losing their lives. They might be martyrs. And that's the, that's the like, the, you know, what, high-level persecution I think for us, some of what we deal with here is that low, the low-level temptation. And it's, it's, it's a subtle falling away, but nonetheless, we get too comfortable. We have a false sense of security. And the temptation is to just, to just think everything's all good. There's no, I, don't, I don't need to resist this world at all, you know? And so the solution is not that, that we would live some kind of so somber, joyless, morose, you know, existence. You remember how the book of James opens up. He says, he says, count it all joy. Count it pure joy, actually, when you face trials and temptations, the testing of your faith. And this this tension that we're in is to have joy in the midst of trials. To have joy and trials together. To, to be in this world but not to be of it. To love this world and not to love it. You know what I'm saying? Flannery O'Connor, who's, she's, she's a bad lady, um, Probably one of the best uh, Christian fiction writer, I think, hands down. Um, she sums it up by, by saying this. We, she's talking about Christians. We have to cherish the world at the same time that, that, that we struggle to endure it. You know? The world is, is just, it's just cold-blooded at times. And it, it can be so crushing that we, we, we might want to lose any sense of hope, lose any sense of joy, or it can be so alluring that we lose any sense of discipleship, any sense of resistance, any sense of being different. So James says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. The story of Job is the story of a man, he, he had everything, and then he had nothing. He had it all. And he endured this world and everything that the world could hand out, anything that could befall us, and he didn't lose his faith. And he wasn't quiet about it either. It wasn't just life is peaches and cream. I'm just looking heavenward. He had, this man had a lot of words to say. A lot. He had a lot of outrage a lot of crying out, questioning God. He wanted to put God in the witness stand so he could cross-examine him. But he had faith, too. He didn't lose that faith. And you, you, Job is like, you marry this, this outrage with the world and how things are not right with this ruthless faith that, that continues to trust even when things don't make sense. Is not taking comfort from cheap little pithy slogans. He's angry. He's upset. And in the end, he doesn't get any explanation either. But he gets, he gets God. He gets, God comes to him. 
And he doesn't get an answer, but he gets God and that's, he's comforted. That's enough for him. And James says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oh, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Otherwise, this is all hopeless, and you should just go home and live it up. Because just like patience in the face of suffering and hardships, it only makes sense if Christ is returning. And so this call to, to obedience, this call to repentance, this call to discipleship, it only is possible or even imaginable if God is compassionate and full of mercy. Otherwise, it's hopeless. We're done for. Because none of us has arrived and none of us has been perfected. And somebody said it like this, this, this German pastor uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he was a boss. He was such a good Christian that the Nazis had to throw him in prison. He said, there's two errors you've got to avoid. One is the preaching of cheap grace, which means you preach grace without a call to repent. You offer people the forgiveness of sins without even having to confess them. That's not real grace. That's actually, that's damnation. And the other error you got to avoid is preaching uh, works only. That you're justified by your works. you got to work it out. It's all on you. you gotta, you got to just work your hardest and try your hardest and, and hope that you make it. That's also damnation. But the challenge is to, to bring those two together. That call to discipleship, that call to repentance, that call to be different, to invite suffering and trials in your life and the preaching of radical mercy and compassion. That it's not, we don't have a taskmaster God. We have a gracious God who, who breaks people out of slavery. We're not in slavery anymore. We're family. And, and James, he has hard words for us, but this is hard words amongst family. That's how it's supposed to be. That's love. It's not love to just act like everything's all good and, it, and, and gloss over stuff. And finally, it, it, it closes with, um, I think I left this part out. Above all, bro my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just real quick, because I know kickoff is at noon. <laughs> if, if you're a liar, please do not bring God into it by swearing, I swear to God. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Man, the only people who say that are people who are untrustworthy anyway. That's a big deal. If you say you're going to be someplace, be someplace. If you say you're going to do something, do it. You don't have to swear. You don't have to take an oath or anything. Just be, have integrity. That's hard. It's once you get into that, man, this person lies. This person's full of baloney. That's hard to get out of, man. That, that will follow you for a long, long time. I got friends and family members that are just, man, just habitual liars. It's, it's, a, it's a fear. And, and I, my son is an example. I mean, I, anytime something's going on, and there's that always a temptation, like, well, my sister did this, or I didn't know. Come on, buddy, just, let's just tell the truth and just be able to say, I did wrong. I messed up. And just take responsibility and not be like, oh, I swear I didn't do that. I swear it's not my fault. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So when we close, and when we come together, when we lift up our voices and we sing, we take this meal. Um, it doesn't seem like much of a meal. It seems like just a snack. And Jesus, um, he, he started this meal. He started it with his disciples. The night that he was betrayed, the night he went to, um, on trial, um, he talked about his <clears throat> talked about his kingdom being like a, a wedding supper. That is, it would be this celebration, like a, like a marriage supper. And he said that 
You know, when he, the night that he ate this meal with his disciples, he said, I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. This meal, we call it communion because it's supposed to nourish us. It's supposed to strengthen us. But it's also, it's supposed to, I think, make us more hungry. More hungry in that this is not, this is not exactly what we're looking forward to. This is an in-between. It's like a sneak preview of the real, the real communion that we're looking, looking to when we will be made anew, when we won't have to struggle with our sins anymore, when it won't be such a, the trials and temptations will be over. And so when we take this meal, my prayer is that it would, it would, it would cause us to hunger more for the kingdom, for the Lord's coming. Because the, the fact of the matter is, is if we're supposed to be a people with a message to a lost world, if we don't want that, if we don't desire that, if that yearning is not fostered within us, why would we tell anybody else, you know? So this meal is supposed to nourish us and encourage us, and it's supposed to be a time of communion with one another, with the Lord, you know? It's a sign of our unity when we take this together. And it's also supposed to be, I believe, that it's supposed to make us dissatisfied. And it's not supposed to fill us up. It's supposed to make us more hungry because that, that, that day has not come yet. And it's supposed to, to create in us a sense of, please come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. We want to see you. We want to be in your kingdom, in your presence. But for the meantime, let this nourish us, Okay. So um, Emma and the rest of the musicians are going to come back up, and, uh, and let's pray, and we'll take communion together. God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you, God, that you have made us um, family through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death for our sins, through his resurrection, um, giving us hope of eternal life with you, God. In the meantime, Lord, help us. Help us to, to learn what it means to follow you in this world, um, to walk against the grain and, and to swim against the stream. God, I, I pray that you would just encourage us and give us grace to make room in our life for 